following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. All right, uh, this Sunday and next Sunday, I want to do two sermons that kind of center around New Year's. Usually during New Year's, we talk about this time of transition, and you'll see all these end-of-the-year lists about what was good and bad in 2018, and you'll see all these predictions about what people are hoping for in 2019. But it's the one time of year that we really focus on uh, this kind of odd point of tension, and that is things that have happened in the past, they matter, they're important, but we don't want to get stuck in them. Things that are coming up in the future, it's great to plan and to dream, but there's a connection between the past and the future that the present kind of connects together. So I want to do two different Sundays. One will be on how we think about the past, and next Sunday is going to have to do with looking forward as we go into this new year. So a number of years ago, there was kind of this resurgence of people taking old photos and then inserting a new photo into the picture. You can see an example up there on the screen that they simply uh, found an old photo. They looked at something new. They put it in so it fits, and you could see what that place looked like uh, 50, 100, however many years ago. I don't know how old cameras are. Someone else can do that research. Uh, you see them sometimes when people post Christmas pictures or they post something as a family this time of year. They'll recreate photos like when kids were three, they were all doing some crazy pose and now they're all 50 and they're hurting themselves trying to recreate this pose just to remind themselves of what this was like. But we have this sense of nostalgia often for the past. And I don't mean always because sometimes things in the past were painful, but Generally speaking, there's at least something that we look back into our past and we have this poignant feeling of of loss. It was precious and it was dear. Other times we look in our past and we're really glad that that's no longer part of our lives. And maybe it's relief, maybe it's anger, maybe it's guilt. But there's something about the power of our past that really forms us. And one of the questions is, what do we do with that? Do we ignore it? Do we embrace it? How do we take the things that have formed us and make sure that what is being brought out of us in this formation is something that is honoring to God and honoring to people around us? And what I want to talk about this morning, I'm borrowing from a guy named Bob Kellerman, who's a Christian counselor. If you pick up my notes, you can find where his website is. He's a good perspective on this. And he's going to move us from remembering things in our past to how we retell these stories and what the process of Christian maturity looks like as we put these things in their place. So what I'm going to do is walk through the steps he offers, and then at the end I just want to give some examples of how this looks as we remember certain things in our life and submit them, uh, surrender them to Christ to see what he is doing in our lives in the midst of it. So first of all, this seems like a really obvious one. When it comes to things in the past, we remember them. This word is used 167 times in the Bible, at least if you use the NIV. Depending on your translation, they might say something different. We see it in the Old and New Testament, but over and over and over again, we're given the admonition to remember. And usually what is accompanying this is a reminder that God is at work, God is present. And as we remember things in our lives, remembering to find how God was working in our lives. I'm reading now from Deuteronomy chapter 8, 
beginning in verse 11. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I am giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He led you through the vast and dreadful desert, that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you water out of hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the desert, something your fathers had never known, to humble and to test you so that in the end it might go well with you. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth, and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your forefathers, as it is today. So that's Deuteronomy 8. You're to remember, you're to look back for a number of reasons. For one, that you don't forget to observe his commands. If you forget God, you forget his commands, his decrees. You'll start to think that all the good things you have have something to do with you. But the reality is all the good things you have have everything to do with God. He's the one who brought you out of slavery. He's the one who has given you gold and silver. And don't forget, he says, don't forget the time of testing. You need to remember this. You need to remember the time of blessing, all of these things. Why? Uh, to remember that God humbled you. God tested you. Because you were tempted to say, it's my power and it's my strength that have produced this, but it's God who has given the ability to do these things. And as you remember this, it's a confirmation to the Israelites of God's covenant with them. So now we fast forward from Deuteronomy 8 to Deuteronomy 32. And God warns Moses the Israelites are breaking their covenant with him. So after this great admonition in the beginning, please don't forget God is faithful to his covenant with you. Uh, It doesn't take too long for them to break the covenant. So God tells Moses, write down this song of God's presence, and it's a reminder of God's covenant faithfulness, among many other things. And one portion of the song reads this way, and this is Deuteronomy 32, verse 7. Remember the days of long ago. Think about the generations past. Ask your father, and he will inform you. Inquire of your elders, and they will tell you. Now we fast forward a long ways to when Jesus is with his disciples during the Last Supper, and he says, keep doing this to remember me. Over and over we're told, you must remember. In the Old Testament, you remembered to remember God's covenant. In the New Testament, Jesus says, you must keep doing this to remember me. When we take communion, we talk about this. We celebrate Christ's death till he comes. We're actually revisiting what in some ways was a tragic portion of human history before the resurrection in which there was glory and praise. But you don't avoid those things. You remember. You remember the blessings. You remember the pain. You remember the trials. You remember all these things because they're meant to point you toward God. Now, there's other times we read about forgetting the former things. And I often hear this come up in conversation in Christian circles, that the Bible tells us we're supposed to forget things in our past. The two key verses I often hear, one is from Isaiah, chapter 43, verses 18 and 19. Forget the former things. 
Do not dwell on the past. See, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you perceive it? I am making a way in the desert and streams in the wasteland. Then we jump to New Testament, Philippians 3, forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, I I would argue that the authors here are not recommending that we develop amnesia about our past. In fact, in both of these passages, the references are to good things. Isaiah was referring to ways in which God had blessed them. And then he says, but forget those former things, don't dwell on the past. Once again, not that you have amnesia about them, but you can't live in the past. Uh, God blessed you once, but there's other ways God is blessing you now. Don't get mired back there. In fact, several verses later in Isaiah, Isaiah says, review the past for me. So he's clearly not saying forget. He's just saying you have to put it in its proper place. It happened. It was either good or bad. God's going to do something with it, but you must move on from those things into what God is calling you to now. In Philippians, this is actually referring to good things in Paul's life. When Paul says, I forget those things which are behind me, and I press on, he's not referring to trials and hardships in this passage. He's referring to the things that we would think of as awesome things. And Paul says, um, I got to, in some sense, forget about those. Once again, not amnesia. But I can't be complacent in what God has done in me or for me. There's more to what God is calling me to do. So remembering the past is important for at least two reasons. Number one, it'll inform or form who we are today. Now, I'm a big fan of the phrase, our history is not our destiny. Just because we have done something or something has been done to us, it does not mean that fate takes over and now we are stuck. The things that have formed us are absolutely the way the rest of our life is going to be. If that were true, there would be no hope of the gospel. But the gospel is about new lives and redemption and forgiveness and hope and ways to move forward. But our our past, it informs who we are today. And when we study it, it'll reveal God's faithfulness to us, God's covenant with us today. So first thing we do is remember. The second thing we do is reflect. I think if we try to ignore or forget about bad past experiences in our lives, whether that be sin we have done, mistakes we have made, things that have been done to us, I I think we'll actually end up failing to cope with life and we turn to what we call coping mechanisms. And these are things that sometimes it can be good things, but things that we use to kind of drown uh, the depression, the anxiety, the guilt, the shame, the whatever it is that kind of lingers with us from the past, we often talk about coping mechanisms in terms of addiction like drinking and drugs, but we can use food as a coping mechanism. We can hide our faces in our phones as a coping mechanism. We can curl up with a good book as a coping mechanism. And once again, not all of these things are bad things. But they can even be good things that we use to escape, to avoid. Um, and I'm not talking about taking a, a short vacation from a life where you get your breath back get your feet back under you, and now you can re-engage. I'm talking about ways we use these things so that we don't have to be honest 
about the things in our life that have formed us and that have shaped us. There's a verse in Deuteronomy 9. We're doing a lot in Deuteronomy today. Remember and never forget how angry you made the Lord your God in the wilderness. Oh, remember, never forget how angry you made God. Uh, I mocked up a little coffee mug um, for this verse just because you don't usually see this on coffee mugs or motivational bumper stickers. I'm thinking I'm going to market these. Remember and never forget how angry you made the Lord every morning. You're sipping coffee and eating your donut. See, that's a reference to the golden calf episode. And, and Moses actually goes on right away to list four more times they made God angry. This is verses 22 and 23. You also made the Lord angry at Taborah, at Masa, at Kibroth Hatava, I don't know, and Kadesh Barnea. So there's at least five places now that Moses says to the people of God, listen, do not forget when you made God angry. I, I wonder sometimes if we shouldn't be putting those on our bathroom walls and on our refrigerators. Just because they weren't allowed to forget this. And why? This would be my question. Why? Well, here's another question then. Can you remember times that you angered your spouse? All the married people said, yeah. Can you remember a time you angered your children? And I don't mean appropriately in terms of being a parent, but I mean you were an idiot. And you angered your children. Children, you're not off the hook. Can you remember a time, boys, you're listening? Can you remember a time that you angered your parents? A time you angered your friends? Why would we remember this? Because we learn from it. We learn from it. If I forget the things that I do that anger my wife, we're stuck in a rut because I'm just going to keep doing them. Now, if I just don't care enough, that's a whole issue about my character and integrity. But if I would just get amnesia about the things that really pushes my wife's buttons, that's just not going to go well long term, right? I have to remember the things that angered my wife. Now, I want to remember the things that brought her joy also. I want to remember the things that made her happy because I want to replicate those, but I can't forget the things that made her angry. I can't forget the things that make my boys angry, not because I have rules on my home, but if I have ways that I come across to them that are hurtful, that are mean, that there's something about my character that needs adjusting, and I hurt my sons, I have to remember that. I have to remember that because I have to learn from that. We read in Deuteronomy, remember and never forget how angry you made the Lord. Why? Not to keep us stuck in shame and guilt, but so that we remember, oh, these are the things that make God angry. Why don't I not try to do those again? In the same way, these are the things that make God happy. How do we know this? The Bible lays this out for us. I don't have time to read the whole thing this morning. But it's there for us. We don't have to wonder what makes God angry or happy. He's revealed it to us, which is a tremendous blessing. So never forget, don't dodge these things. Reflecting on the devastation of sin also reminds us of the grace of God. Because if I remember the ways I've made God angry and God still loves me, 
That's a reminder about God's forgiveness and grace at the depth of God's forgiveness and grace. Because I don't know about you, but I know times that I have made God angry, that I have grieved God, that I have failed God. I know these times. And yet my Bible tells me that God loves me and he calls me his child. And I'm still his and I'm still part of the family because God is rich in mercy. So I don't want to forget the times I angered God because they remind me of the times that God forgave me. It reminds me of what a great God I serve. And in the same way, I think, I don't want to forget the times I've made people around me angry because I want to remember what that was because I want to change what's in my control to change but how I relate to people, but also, especially as those people continue to be a part of my life, reminds me that they put up with me, that they extend grace toward me, that I live in a community of people that holds me close in spite of all the reasons I give them to push me away. That's a beautiful story. So I want to reflect to remind myself of God's kingdom of grace. Next, I want to repent. In Revelation, uh, John gives props to the church in Ephesus for doing a lot of things right. And then he says this in verse 5, You have forsaken the love you had at first. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. There's an interesting verse about remembering the heights. We're not just called to remember the bad things. Remember the heights. Remember what it was like to flourish in your relationship with God and in the kingdom of God. Do you remember that as well? All right, repent and do the things you did at first. And I'm more and more convinced that when we, when we experience true life-changing repentance, and by that I mean it's more than just words. It, it has something to do with our heart is broken and humbled. We recognize the pain and the hurt that we have caused God and others. And we go in humility and say, I have sinned against you. Not just, I made a mistake, I was distracted. Not an approach that minimizes or deflects or anything, but approach that owns everything you need to own and says, I'm an idiot, I'm a sinful idiot. I have hurt you. You can write that quote down, I'm a sinful idiot. That'll be my other mug. I've hurt you, and I I beg your forgiveness. I beg your forgiveness. So that's the kind of repentance we're talking about, and a repentance that then is followed with a change of lifestyle. Not just words that say, I'm sorry, and we go back and continue to do what we did to hurt them in the first place. But words accompanied by a commitment to reordering our steps so that we don't continue the hurt that we have done. So the goal is not shame, it's repentance. And out of that repentance comes renewal and restoration. Out of that comes real relationship. We read in Psalm 51, David wrote this after his affair with Bathsheba. And he kind of writes a psalm that models what it looks like to remember and repent with your heart and your actions and then receive God's renewal. Starting in verse one, but I'm gonna, I have two paragraphs. It's from two different parts in the psalm. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. 
Wash away my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Then we jump to verse 10. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a right spirit or a steadfast spirit within me. In other words, it's not just repentance. There's something that's offered on the other side of repentance. Don't cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Return to the first things. And grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. So so David adds repentance to his recollection of what he did. But he also anticipates the forgiveness and the mercy of God. It's God is a God of justice, but God is a God of mercy as well. Next, we reinterpret. So we've remembered, we've reflected, we've repented, and now we reinterpret. And this has to do with looking uh, at our choices and our lives and look look at it through the lens of how was God faithful in the midst of what happened. And I'm going to use an example from Joseph's life. This is an example where something was done to Joseph. So from here on out, you're going to see kind of a mix of times we're remembering painful things that we're responsible for, but other times it's looking at things that have been done to us and trying to put them in the right perspective. So Joseph said this to his brothers who sold him into slavery. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what's now being done, which is the saving of many lives. And the language of this passage kind of carries it with it, this symbolism of if someone was weaving a tapestry. Or maybe you could even say painting. You're mixing darks and lights to create a beautiful picture, but you can't have the fullness of the beauty of the picture without there being some dark threads that are woven into the fabric. And if you think of those as the hard things in life, this is the idea of this. You intended to create this picture in my life that was all negative and bad. But what God has done is taken all of these things and brought something beautiful from it. And I preached on this a number of years ago, and as I was looking back at my notes, I think I got something wrong. I said this story was about Joseph, and it's not, really. I mean, it involves Joseph. Joseph's in the story, but the story's not about Joseph. The story's about God. Because what happened, Joseph says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish something amazing in me. No. God used it to accomplish what's now being done, and that is the saving of many lives. God did this for the sake of the world, to show that he is so great that even in the worst of situations, I'm trying to think of something uh, to top Joseph's story. Your own brothers sell you into slavery. You squander for years in a prison in what looks like a hopeless situation, all these other people get out early because of your help for them. And finally, Joseph is brought, I mean, it's just a bad story, but God takes this story and creates something beautiful from it. But he doesn't do it for Joseph. I mean, Joseph benefits, don't get me wrong. Joseph experienced God's faithfulness in his life and it changed Joseph, but that wasn't the ultimate purpose. God reinterpreted this story to accomplish God's purpose, which was the saving of many lives. So I would say it highlights this point. God can take a life that has absorbed a lot of harm and bring about good for the sake of the world. 
So part of the reinterpretation of our lives is looking at the story in our lives and recognizing there's an answer to these questions. Can God ever use me? I am so broken. I am so damaged. I've made so many mistakes or so many horrible things have been done to me. Can God use me? And the answer is yes, over and over in Scripture. God isn't stumped by sin. He's not frustrated by chaos. This is what he's good at, is taking chaos and bringing order, taking ashes and bringing beauty, taking things that are broken and and fixing them. So reinterpret doesn't mean we lie about our past, that we gloss over things, that we ignore stuff. It's none of those things. It means that as we look at the course of our lives, we're looking at how God was faithfully present. Okay, in this time, in this moment, in this event, how was God there working, not just in me, but working the story of my life for the good of the world? So reinterpreting is a challenge to see how our past experiences are eventually used by God not just to build us, but to minister to others for their good and God's glory. And then finally, retelling is just another way of saying we engage in worship by giving the story of our lives to other people because it's going to show how God weaves his goodness in the world. One of the things we do with small groups here in church, and we've done this this last fall with our small group, we take turns telling our story. We've got a couple more people to go yet. And it's just trying to be honest about remembering, uh, reinterpret, doing all these things we're talking about. We do these things, and as we do this, we see not just the story of the person who is giving their testimony, but we just see the story of God's faithfulness in their lives. It, and honestly, I think that's the purpose of testimonies. The testimonies are never about us. As Christians, our testimonies are always about Christ in us, that is the hope of glory. When I talk about myself from the pulpit, it's not because I want you to walk away thinking Anthony is awesome. I think I give enough stories to clarify that I'm not, but let's just say that was a temptation. I don't, that's not the goal of the story. The goal of the story is to point to Christ in me, that even me, God was faithful in. Even in the midst of my sin and failures, God was faithful. This is the story of God in the world. In our testimonies, the goal is that Christ increases and we decrease. I mean, if we give our testimony to somebody, somebody walks away remembering us, we have done an injustice to Christ in us. People need to walk away from our story remembering Christ, not remembering us. David wraps up Psalm 51. So this was the psalm about Bathsheba. He says, then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. Why does David talk about this incident in his life so that I could teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you? So for one, he can use his life story as a warning, but then also open my mouth, Lord, so I can declare your praise. And how does David declare praise to God in the context of this chapter? It's by telling his story. It's by telling the story about his failure with Bathsheba and the faithfulness of God to forgive and restore. I think it's often the retelling 
where we see even the worst parts of our past, how they're reclaimed and our story is retold for the glory of God. I've noticed as uh, I've given my testimony several times now with our small group, things start to click for me. Things that I don't even think of on my own when I'm just thinking about my life. There's something about saying it out loud. And then sometimes with the help of the group, going, wait a minute, God took that and did this. Huh. Or someone else going, do you realize the first part of your testimony was always about this and now it's about this? I noticed this last year. Um, I left out an important part of my testimony that two years before was a big deal when I shared it with my group. And when I shared my story again, I forgot about it. And I was talking to the group the next week that I realized I left out a really significant issue in my life. What did that tell me? That God has provided some healing and some resolution to a very painful and difficult time in my life. God has been faithful. Now, I, be- I think I shared with my group then what it was because I don't want to forget. I don't want to forget because then I'll forget God's faithfulness and how he has been healing me over the course of my life. All right, I want to give you a couple examples from my life. And, and once again, I'm doing this only because I want to kind of walk us through what this looks like. We don't have Message Plus this morning because we have a potluck. So we're not going to have a class where we walk through this. Um, but if you pick up my notes, there's a link to Bob Kellerman's website. It'll also tell you about his book where I got all this stuff. This might be something that you find helpful just as you're thinking about things in your life or as you're talking with others about it as well. So here we go. Example number one, I was self-centered, shallow, and immature when I dated Sheila and when we got married. And some would argue this continues to be a challenge, um, but none of you are going to say that out loud. All right, what I mean by this is that when I look back on our dating years and our early years in particular, it is easy for me to feel great shame that I was such an immature person and that I, in some ways unwittingly, but in other ways, I just, I did not honor Sheila like I should have. Uh, My pride and my self-centeredness caused me to overlook so many things, ways in which I think I did relation, well, no, I know. I did relational damage to our marriage, and I look back, and I want to shake my head and kind of crawl into a corner and go, what was I thinking? So how do I process that? First of all, I remember it happened. It was formative. It was something that had an impact on our marriage, and then over the years, we had to talk through. So why would I avoid it? Sheila and I both know what the deal was there. I reflect. All right, what have I learned? I have learned that my wife is full of grace. And that the faithfulness of my wife is profound. I have learned that God is full of grace. That the faithfulness of God is profound. And I serve a God who didn't give up on a person like me. So then I repent. Uh, One is, God, be merciful to me. But the other is to my wife, babe, forgive me. I'm sorry. How do I reinterpret this? Well, you know what? I've gained what I hope is wisdom through a lot of my failures. That over time, part of God's faithfulness has been to help me see how he was present, how important community was, how important it was to be in a group where I was accountable, to have friends in my life, how important it was to talk honestly with Sheila, what repentance and forgiveness looks like, all these types of things. So what do Sheila and I get to do now? 
we get this awesome privilege of when we do marriages or when I do a marriage for someone, Sheila and I do premarital counseling with them, and we just tell them about our lives. I mean, this is part of the retelling. But God's been faithful in two very flawed people. I I don't want to just throw myself under the bus. You're coming with me. God's been faithful to two very flawed people over 28 plus years. Why wouldn't I retell this story? Why wouldn't I tell someone else, whether they're getting married or they are married and they're in some place of difficulty, listen, you want to come talk to me about what a marriage looks like when God is part of it and what he can do with broken people? We'll talk to you. We'll tell you. Got to retell the story because God is amazing in the midst of an awful lot of brokenness. Number two example, I was devastated by what I perceived as betrayal and corruption in a former church community. Um, This was before I ever moved to Michigan, but my family had an experience that was really um, discouraging on multiple levels, and I don't really want to talk about details here because this can be watched online. Um, I could always tell you more later, but here's the process. Number one, I remember it happened. It was very formative in our lives, uh, not just in terms of an impact on relationships with people, but in terms for a long time of our view of church, um, frustration with views of authority. There was a lot of ripple effects to this. And when I first moved to Michigan, I spent years with anger and bitterness and a whole lot of things that were not healthy. But but then I had to learn to reflect on this, not just remember, but reflect. Okay, here was the reality. In this particular situation, there was a lot of good people who just didn't know what to do. Godly people faced with a tough situation, and godly people disagreed about how to handle this situation, and I'm certain that mistakes were made by everybody, and that includes me. Uh, but, and so the reality is that I'm in need of forgiveness, for that situation. Uh, I need to extend forgiveness in this. And so I had to repent. Why? For my anger and bitterness. And then I have to reinterpret this. Okay, one thing is, we'd have probably never moved from Ohio to Michigan without this situation. I love where God has placed us in Michigan. But he had, I think God knew, because he's pretty smart, he had to uproot us first where we were, before he could get us to put our roots down somewhere else. I have opportunities here to be an ambassador for Christ in ways I probably never would have had had I not moved to Michigan. Yes, it took a tumultuous event to bring me here, but I'm amazed by what I get to do now in the kingdom of God. Um, I might add, um, over the years, there has been lovely healing um, between me and this community, and that's a story for another time. But, um, yeah, it, it's been beautiful. Third example, I gave 10 years of my life to pornography. All right, it happened. It was formative in my life. I have to remember it. I can't forget about it. And then I reflect on this, and one of the reflections I have is, Dear God, I'm prone to sin. Even when I know it's sin, even when I know it's a bad idea on multiple levels, I learned something about myself that Anthony, who took great pride in being the guy who did a lot of things right, is prone to sin. Anthony's not as strong as he thought he was. 
Anthony's in no position to stand on a stage that's elevated geographically and look down my nose spiritually on anybody. That was made clear over 10 years of the course of my life. All right, what do I have to repent for? For my lust, my lies, my hypocrisy, the way in which my participation in that dishonored women, dishonored my wife. It supported an industry of objectification. I had a lot to repent for. But now I can reinterpret it at the end of all this. And that is, in my experience, God broke the power of that miraculously in my life in a way that I did not expect, and that was profound. Part of the way that happened was this brutal realization one day, and I could actually give you the story of the day, the brutal realization one day that I was a terribly sinful person whose life was a stench in the nostrils of God. And that was from a guy who, by that point in my life, I had decided I'll do everything right, everything else right. This will be an area of my life that's just going to be terribly sinful. I'll do everything else right, so the balance of my good deeds will outweigh the balance of my bad deeds. I'll be a good person as far as everybody knows. That should work. That was a terrible plan. A part of God's breaking was making it clear to me, um, Anthony, you're corrupt in every part of your life. Every part of your life is corrupt. Now, that might sound depressing, but for me, that was life-changing. It just put me on the floor of repentance. Dear God, I had no idea I was this bad. But that's when I learned the grace of God. I had no idea I served a God who was that full of forgiveness and grace and mercy and a God who was so powerful that he could take a deeply flawed guy like me and rebuild what was broken and then eventually take that very thing that had broken me for all those years and turn it into something that now can become part of the story of the power of God. And I learned humility and I learned empathy and I learned grace by walking through this fire. I can now talk to, G- to other people about hope because of Jesus. Not hope because of Anthony thing Anthony did. Lord knows I ran out of ideas. I gave up. It was, it was all God's work in my life. And, and so now, and I've said this from the pulpit before, and I'll tell you this again, because here I am retelling my story. As I look back, God is using this. The enemy meant for it to destroy me, but God did not intend for it to destroy me. In fact, he intended to make a new story of it for the sake of the saving of others, not just for my sake. And I've said this before, if this is an issue you struggle with, come talk to you. I'll tell you everything you need to know about my story. I don't have to hide in shame about that part of my life, which is why I could say it to you from the pulpit, and I have before. Because God's been faithful in my life. How can I not tell you this? I have to tell you this. You need to know that God is faithful in the worst of circumstances, and there's hope on the other side of those things. So this allows me to walk into all my memories of my failures, of my sins done by me, of the sins done to me. I can walk into everything, and I'm not going to give lists now, but I had a nervous breakdown years ago because I worked too hard. 
against the advice of everyone around me who said, hey, Anthony, do you know you can't do it all? And I said, whatever. And it turned out I couldn't. Uh, all right. Um, I can walk back through this process. I remember, I reflect, I, re, I repent, I, I reinterpret, I look at what God has done in my life, what he taught me through that. Ministry opportunities that have come from that because of that process. I've managed to offend far too many people on social media. I have a history of anger that has hurt me, those around me, and it's hurt my witness. I have failed many times to be the dad or husband I should be. I'm a flawed pastor, and you're the ones who feel that. We don't have time this morning for me to go through my process, but as I was making this list this week, part of me didn't want to make that list. But that's the list, folks. It's the history of my life. Right? I I can't pretend it didn't happen. I got to walk into it. And in that process of walking into it, I, I remember so that I can reflect and learn. I don't want to forget when I've angered God and when I've angered others. I learn from that. Then, as I reflect and I learn, then I, now I can repent to God and to others. And then I get to experience forgiveness, which is awesome, from God and hopefully from others. And then I begin to experience this process of restoration in my life. I see the faithfulness of God at work. And as that grows, I can look back at all my life and see how God has been faithful in my life. He's never left. He's been present. He's been working things in me. He's been taking all the threads of life. And as I surrender my life in this process... As I surrender it, my life in repentance, God does this work that's just amazing. And then I retell my story so that the story of God's work of salvation and renewal is known. Please, please don't. If you, think, if you think it's cool that I'm able to be that honest about my life, please don't walk out and go, wow, Anthony's, no, no, no. God was faithful in Anthony's life. None of, none of this was me, and I'm not trying to say that to be falsely humble. I know myself well enough to know that the miraculous power of God has done a work in my life that was not my work. Dear God, was not my work. I'm the recipient of God's power and grace. So as we look back on the year, let's look back on our lives. Let's not be afraid to remember, but let's do more than that. And this is Kellerman's process. I can't give you verse by verse in the Bible. I think it's a biblically-based process. But Kellerman didn't write scripture, right? This is his idea of what it looks like. I think it's a good one. I think it models what it looks like for us as Christians to surrender our past to Christ, which will then also include surrendering our present to Christ because we have been formed. That's going to mean we surrender our future to Christ because he's doing a work in us now. Lord, I'm grateful that you're a God uh, of redemption, of salvation. I'm grateful that we don't have to fear looking back on our lives, that we don't have to fear remembering, that we don't have to avoid, that we don't have to pretend something didn't happen that did, that we don't even have to look away. We can look back in honesty because that's... It's part of our life. But we do that because you are with us 
and you walk back into those memories with us. And then, Lord, in that process of us learning to see you, of learning to own and repent the things we need to own and repent from, of learning to seek forgiveness from you and for others, from others, for learning to find you in the midst of our story and see the hope that you offer. In fact, uh, see how you will use our story uh, to extend hope to the world as they see Christ in us, bringing salvation and renewal and redemption. Uh, Lord, make us a people who long for that and pursue that so that our lives and our church, your body, can be this shining light of hope. We pray these things, Lord, in your name. Amen. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.